Looks like uh, PowerPoint's up and running. And if you couldn't tell, uh, Chaplain Marshall he is here to preach again. You probably didn't know that my blood type is type A. That stands for the apocalypse. <laughs> my favorite theme, end time, last day themes. And so uh, I don't want to disappoint you today either. And uh, so we are uh, taking a look today at the parable of the ten virgins, which is part of what's referred to as the Olivet Discourse or the sermon that Jesus preached on the Mount of Olives, his last day sermon. And um, ten virgins... Wise and foolish, saved and lost, two groups. Interestingly enough, there are other parables, also end-time parables, that Jesus taught that have similar dynamics. Here in the parable of the ten virgins, you have two groups of people and one event, which is very decisive, and uh, you also have the sheep and the goats. Similar dynamic, two groups, one saved, one lost. You have the good fish and the bad fish. And uh, kind of difficult to tell the difference there, but so, so, so it seems with the wheat and the tares too, and the wise and foolish servants, the wheat and the tares, and you could even include the... the uh, builder on the rock and the builder on the sand in there as well, all of them having similar uh, themes, three things mostly in common, two groups of people, one saved, one lost, one event, and no second chance. But interestingly enough, when you get to the history of the Christian church, and I'm going to take a little digression and a detour here into some technical waters, so... Um, if you start to fall asleep, you can blame me, okay? The, the church creeds, the major, major church creeds going back to what is purported to be the apostolic creed, which was probably developed sometime after that. And you have all of these major church creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Augsburg Confession, the Anglican Articles of Faith, and the Westminster Confession, and all of those. And they all have one thing in common. They all share this same kind of dynamic, this plain biblical truth of one return of Christ, one decisive event with two groups of people, not three or four or five. It isn't until we get to the 19th century that we run into this fellow right here. His name, John Nelson Darby. And he would have a profound effect on Christian eschatology, as they say, end-time theology, what the Bible purports to teach about that. And he would develop an entirely new system and understanding of end-time theology. The fellow here, here uh, is something that he said. He said, the subject of prophecy divides itself into two parts, the hope of the church and those of the Jews. So for the first time in Christian history, 
You have one single individual who has devised this system of two plans of salvation for two separate groups of people. It wasn't until this time that this was developed. We refer to this as dispensationalism. Here's some other things he said. Nothing indeed was addressed to the church by the Lord in person because the church did not yet exist to be addressed. You know what that means? All the red letters in your gospels were not spoken to you. They're spoken to the Jews. Have you ever heard that? Most people that believe in this system have never heard of that. He says, I still believe that Matthew 24, which is the subject of our sermon, is addressed to the disciples as Jews. I do not think it was addressed to the church as a church. It really just means it's not really primarily meant for us. This is astounding. This fellow, I think his name was uh, Clarence. Is it Clarence Bass? Is that his name? Yes, Dr. Clarence Bass, famous professor of systematic theology at Bethel, who wrote a lot about dispensationalism. This is what he said about Darby. Darby introduced not only a new concepts in theology, but a wholly new principle of interpretation. He himself admitted that this principle had been hidden from the church for 19 centuries and then revealed only to him. Would it surprise you that the most popular system of interpreting Bible prophecy today came from that man? Who, in a sense, almost claimed to have the gift of prophecy. He's the only, only one to have it revealed to him. Let's take a look at some of the contemporaries of Mr. Darby. Charles Spurgeon, one of them. Charles Spurgeon... They had to build, he was the most renowned preacher of his era in England. They had to build an entire church to accommodate the crowds. It would hold 6,000 persons who it was packed. 1,000 of those would stand like outside, I think, 5,000 inside, 1,000 standing room only on the outside. At the ripe age of 26, they built that church for him, and he pastored it for 31 years. On one occasion, he preached to as many as 24,000 people at once. He had a periodical. It was called The Sword and Trowel. It was a fellow named James Grant who wrote in it about Mr. Darby and his followers. The Plymouth Brethren or Darbyites have no feeling whatever their, wherever their principles are concerned. I know indeed of no sect or denomination so utterly devoid of kindness of heart. It is the most selfish religious system with which I am acquainted. It is entirely wrapped up in itself. They came to be known, self-named, as the exclusivists. Imagine that. With this feeling is naturally associated an amount of arrogance in the assertion of their own views, which those who differ from them often find to be unbearable. You ever run into anybody like that? <laughs> I think I might have met a few. And in this respect, their leader, Mr. Darby, sets them an example. Charles Spurgeon would respond. He said, Mr. Grant 
has done real service to the churches by his treatise on the heresies of the Plymouth Brethren, the followers of Darby, which we trust he will publish in a separate form. It is almost impossible for even his heavy hand to press too severely upon this malignant power whose secret but rapid growth is among the darkest signs of the times. Here's another interesting fellow, George Mueller. You ever hear of him? One of the most famous persons of the 19th century, a man of great renowned faith who raised up orphanages and ministered to more than 10,000 orphans and built more than 117 schools, all by faith. Never for a heartbeat was he ever in debt, and never on a single occasion did he make a plea for monetary donations. Except to God. And this is what he said. He was actually a Darbyite for a little while. He said, my brother, I am a constant reader of my Bible, and I soon found that what I was taught to believe by Darby's doctrine did not always agree with what my Bible said. I came to see that I must either part company with John Darby or my precious Bible, and I chose to cling to my Bible and part from Mr. Darby. It really is contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture to plans of salvation. You only have one olive tree in, in Scripture made up of Gentiles grafted in and Jews in the original olive tree made up of Jews and Gentiles. One olive tree, one bride of Christ. Here in Ephesians, Paul says there's one body, not two. One spirit, just as you're called one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, not two faiths, not two plans of salvation, one baptism. And Jesus in John 10 says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, then also, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be two folds. Is that what it says? It says one fold and one shepherd. Perhaps the most telling is not even a parable, and it's in the Olivet Discourse, the story of Noah's flood. Go back. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two groups of persons, one event, saved and lost, and lost outside the ark, they're saved on the inside. There's a fellow named John Wolverud, uh, was formerly president of Dallas Theological Seminary, the, the most prominent university teaching dispensationalism. And he was the first one to write a book on the subject that accompanies this doctrine, the secret rapture. There you have a picture of the original version. I think it was published in 1957. This is what he said about the rapture. It is therefore not too much to say that the rapture question is determined more by ecclesiology than eschatology. 
They had to take that out of later editions because it wasn't exactly favorable. What he meant was, the teaching of the secret rapture has more to do not with what the Bible says about the return of Christ. No, it has to do with how you believe about two separate plans of salvation, one for Jew and Gentile and one for the church, which means you've got to get the church off the planet so everything else can happen regarding the Jews. Interestingly enough, he also said this. The expert on the rapture, he said this. The departure of the church, that's the rapture, from the earth will obviously cause quite a stir, though the Bible never seems to refer to it directly. Something as important as that, which was originally referred to as the secret rapture, is actually a secret in the Bible. You can't find it there anywhere. It's true. I've had a standing Missouri challenge to find it in the Bible Show me, that's the show me state. Show me one single clear pre-tribulation rapture text and I'll pay you some money. Just not there. And even the experts admit it. The fact that those taken away and as far as the flood of Noah, he says, are judged, those that remain enter the kingdom is taught explicitly in the context. He says in the context where it says they're taken, and they did not know until the flood came and took them away. You see, the Left Behind series says that those that are left behind are of this group that gets a second chance. And those that are taken are the church, taken off the planet. But the actual text says those that are taken are taken in the flood and the loss. And he admits that. The entire Left Behind series is built upon a complete 100% erroneous interpretation of a text which the entire series is built upon. Now let's get back to our text in the time remaining. Now that I've taken a long detour. Hopefully, hopefully I only danced near the cliff and didn't go off the cliff there. Um, yes, let's go back. Ten virgins, all virgins, they all look alike. You can't tell them apart. All professing a pure faith in the bridegroom, who we know represents Jesus. All believe in his soon arrival, the soon arrival of Christ. They all have a lamp to illuminate their way. Which represents the Word of God. Wait a minute, let's... Oops, let me go back. <laughs> I bypassed something. This is representing a wedding. A wedding. Weddings in the Mideast were similar to ours. You have the home of the couple that's built and managed by the groom and his family. You have the clothes. The bride is, is in charge of the clothes for the wedding. You have the festivities. The bride's family is in charge of that. 
The bride is accompanied by her maids, bridesmaids, and, and the groom has the friend of the groom that we know, the, the best man, and so on. And at the end of the day, there's a grand procession that takes place in our parable and also, no doubt, in the weddings of Jesus' day. The groom goes to fetch the bride from her parents, and he arrives, and he ceremoniously removes her veil and places it over his shoulder, and, and the couple goes forth, and the dark way is lit by the guest lamps, and they arrive at the festivities, and then the door is shut. Now let's get back to where I jumped ahead. Ten virgins, all looking identical. You cannot tell them apart. And they all have a lamp to illuminate their way. They all have a knowledge of the Word. They all know biblical truth. They have received the gospel. They are virginal, if you will. They're not tainted by false doctrine or false faiths. They all look the same. They behave the same. Yet five are wise and five are foolish or lost. Let's take a look at the foolish. Fine, upstanding Christians they are. They're not hypocrites as far as we can tell. They know their Bible. They love the company of Christians. They're attracted to the gospel. They long for heaven. Yet they lack one life and death ingredient, extra oil. They're content with a superficial, shallow work in their Christian experience. They're not thoroughly fallen and broken on the rock. They know the truth, yet they are not known of God. They have not tested his promises through faith and practice. They have not communed daily with him in prayer and depended upon him. Thereby they are foolish. What about the wise? The wise have no eyes or thoughts or care but for the bridegroom and his arrival. They show their love by their attention to detail. Something so seemingly trivial, a little extra oil, and yet it is absolutely essential in the eternal scheme of things. Now in verse 5. We are told that the bridegroom tarries, or the bridegroom is delayed. Time of waiting ensues, and faith is tested. Their faith is tested during the tarrying time. And now, one of the most curious passages in all of Scripture follows. While the bridegroom tarried, the foolish slumbered and slept. 
No? Yes, they all slumbered, and they all slept, and they went to sleep, and I suspect they even snored, if you could have heard. Yes. The greatest danger to the church is not secularism or communism or racism or fascism or atheism or agnosticism or anarchism, but somnambulism. You know what that is? Sleepwalking. Sleepwalking. Yes. This is the profile of God's end time people. Not only lukewarm, but asleep. Asleep. Asleep at the, even the wise. Asleep at the wheel. What's going on here? Oh, my the knowledge of the nearness of Christ's return wanes. Truth begins to lose its force, and they fall asleep. Even the wise slumbering away. Oh, my. Jesus asked the rhetorical question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? Yes, perhaps an unconscious, sleeping and slumbering faith. Will he find faith on earth? Oh. That's a little church I used to be an associate pastor of in Vermont. 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 Up there where in the winter you can have two solid weeks of 20 degrees below zero, and that might be your high for the day. Yes, I, I worked outside framing carpentry right through the winter, climbing all up on a roof in high wind and 20 degrees below zero, had to run back into the basement, warm my hands up, and then go back to it. Only 10 members there. We had one guy there who was 95 years old. And on occasion, he would actually preach from the pulpit from memory. Blind preacher. Anyway, there's a story told about a little country church like this where there was a pastor who was afflicted with narcolepsy. You know what that is? That's where at the most inopportune moments, you will fall right asleep, which means you can't get a driver's license. You've got that. One prison chapel I preached in, one of my regular attendees, members, was a guy with narcolepsy. Just like clockwork, I'd be five minutes into my sermon, he'd be out like a light and snoring loudly. Somebody have to shake him, wake him up. Here's this preacher's got narcolepsy, and so the story goes... Story goes that he started to fall asleep while he was preaching that day. A few dear elderly saints in the pews, a few saints there in the pews, and he just finally started falling asleep and snoring at the pulpit. And everybody in the congregation did likewise. And somebody came in to visit. They came in and came in the foyer, came into church sanctuary, and, and they thought to themselves, well, What's going on here? The truth was, nothing was going on here. Sleeping preachers preaching to sleeping saints. 
That's the picture of God's last day church. All asleep, slumbering away. One of the most famous preachers of the 18th century, wasn't it? George Whitfield, he could hold 10,000 people in rapt awe. Benjamin Franklin did an experiment, and he paced off the distance from where he was preaching. He found he could be heard a mile away. And Whitfield said, to preach more than half an hour, a man should be an angel himself or have angels for hearers. As Whitfield. But you know, the old joke is, uh, do you know what it, what it means when the, when the long-winded preacher looks at his watch? It means nothing, absolutely nothing. Whitfield, uh, oh, here, here, here I am in the pulpit that the last pulpit that Martin Luther preached in, in his hometown. I had the privilege of standing in that pulpit. You may not know, but back then in that day in the Reformation, if you went to church, guess what? There were no pews. You'd be standing for the church service. You can't fall asleep on your feet. Whitfield also said to preach more than half an hour. No, what what happened there? Oh, looks like I got the wrong message there. Sorry. Well, anyway. Well, I see my colleague is laughing at me. Hopefully he's laughing with me instead of at me. It's always intimidating when you have somebody of his experience in the audience. Um... Let me paraphrase what Whitfield actually said. He said, the church is in such a condition that the only thing that will wake it is a loud cry. And that is actually biblical. You have a loud cry that's going to happen that will awake the church from its slumbers. Snoring, sleeping like the disciples in the garden while the fate of the world and the universe hang in the balance. Could you not watch and wait for one hour, Jesus said? As Jesus prepares to drain the dregs of suffering and take upon himself the sins of the world, the entire fate of the universe hangs in the balance. As our salvation hangs in the balance, his disciples are asleep. And then in verse 6, it tells us, that at midnight, there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. At the midnight of earth's history, as the world is plunged into darkness, in the words of Isaiah, for behold, Darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. All around us are heard the wails of a world gone mad, filled with misery and suffering and sorrow and sin and sins that would even make the ancient Romans blush. But Isaiah continues, he says, and I'll finish the text, but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. And in the midst of the spiritual darkness, 
the awakened church will rise like an army with banners, and God's glory will shine upon his people, Jesus to the rescue. Everyone is aroused. Everyone trims their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Give us of your oil, for our lamps have gone out. It's too late. They plead for supply, but no one can make up for another spiritual deficiency. You cannot believe for another person. You cannot love for them. You cannot bear fruit for them or build Christian character for another. Go and buy, but it's too late to buy, too late to go do what should have been done. Give us of your oil. No, they can't. They can't. They should have bought before. There's a parallel with the message to Laodicea in Revelation 3. I counsel you to buy from me, while it can be bought, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and eyes salve to put on your eyes so that you can, dis you can see and discern. So the time is now to purchase from Jesus without price, without price, the oil, the precious graces of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, faith which works by love. Yes, and there may be trials associated with this, gold tried in the fire. We might have to go through trials and tribulations for this process to take place. Lo, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. He that has no money, come and buy, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now is the time to purchase those precious graces that we read of to the church of Laodicea, the slumbering church as well, the lukewarm slumbering church, if you will. It's too late for the foolish. The door of mercy is shut. Probation is closed. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the story of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Maybe you've heard it, Thousand and One Nights, it's included in two, I think. Story of Alibaba who, who found out the secret password of the thieves who had this special cave. You said open sesame, the, the giant rock would roll away from it, and they put in all their gold and jewels and stuff in there, and then they'd say, close sesame, and the rock would close. And Alibaba's brother, Kasim, was able through artifice to get the password, and he went to the cave, and he went in, and he was so enamored of all the gold and riches and the rock clothes, and he was trapped in there, and he forgot the password. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. No, 
Abracadabra. No, none of that worked. Hocus pocus didn't work. He was trapped. I'm reminded of Matthew 7. Talks about another password that didn't work. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name, cast out devils, and in your name, done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We know the password, Lord. We have supernatural gifts. Our emphasis is on the gifts, not the fruits, but the gifts. Jesus says, you cannot join the feast. Its light would fall on blind eyes. It's music on deaf ears. You are shut out by your own unfitness for heaven's fellowship. And the door is shut. And you don't have the right password. Lord, Lord, if I don't know you, it's not going to work. I'm reminded of a story of tall ships on the river Niagara. Anybody here been to Niagara Falls? Oh, yes. We have some world travelers here. Seems like a different part of the whole world. Like how many, how many miles? Almost 3,000 miles away out there or something. 2,800 miles or something. Anyway, story goes that there used to be tall ships that would sail down the river Niagara and kind of cavort there on the river. And supposedly there was this one ship that the rudder broke and there was no wind and they were kind of cast adrift and they were headed towards the fall. Morbid curiosity seekers on the shore said, she's lost. She's going to go over the falls. She's doomed. Oh, oh. Church will appear as if it's going to fall, but it won't. The slumbering church will appear as if it's going to fall, but it won't. There's a picture of the Canadian side, Horseshoe Falls. When my wife and I were there, we actually saw a triple rainbow in front of dark, ominous clouds and lightning flashes. It was incredible. There's a little couple, there's a double rainbow there. Beautiful. If you ever get a chance to go to the Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side, it's just kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. There's a ship that crashed many years ago. Two men were saved off of that scow. It's still trapped there, Beginning to break up, almost. It will appear as if it's going to go over the falls, but it won't. I'm reminded of the famous land of the lotus eaters. Going back to the tales of Odysseus and the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, one of my favorite poets. And the story was told of an island where it was always afternoon. And they brought the ship to rest there in this idyllic paradise. And uh, 
People put lays around their necks and they gave them the, the lotus fruit to eat. And they were off to cloud nine, off to nirvana. In their slumbers, their drug-induced slumbers of sorts, and it seemed like all was going to be fine, and, and uh, they didn't want to go back to the boat. No, they just wanted to lay there by the shoreside and go to sleep. They didn't want to go back to that boat. Tough life on that boat. Hard life on that ship. Yes. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, and close proximity to other sinners like yourself in the church, on that boat, on that ship, having to deal with board meetings or <laughs> whatever you have to deal with. Oh, yes, no, I don't want to go back to the ship. No, no, surely, surely slumbers are more sweet than toil. Shore is sweeter than labor in the deep Medician ocean, wind and wave and oar. Oh, rest, you fellow mariners. We will not wander more, just to sleep. Just to sleep. And if I didn't put you to sleep yet, maybe I can with my hypnotic voice at this point. You're feeling sleepy. Your eyelids are drooping. Yes, the sermon could be over soon. Oh, sleep. And then, of course, what happens? The cry. Wake up! Wake up! The bridegroom is here. Stories told that the captain of that ship, suddenly he felt a faint zephyr of wind, and he gave the order, raise all of sails, throw up every sail, fill the mizzen mast and the main fore and the bowsprit, and the wind began to fill the sails, and the ship was driven to the shore. The wind of the Holy Spirit, if you don't catch the meaning there, and the ship that looked like it was ready to fall was filled with the Holy Spirit and is saved. Yes. And all the spectators cheered. She saved, she saved. There's still hope for God's slumbering saints. Fight the good fight, throw up every sail. The good sail of hope, yes, trim those lamps. Jesus is going to wake us up, and we need to pray that when he does, there'll be no energy crises, that we will have oil enough to guide our way, to fill us for the final closing work on this planet. And we will be able to cry, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. And we will be welcomed into glory.
Let's sing our closing hymn. Might be hymn 212, if I'm not mistaken. I invite you to stand um, as we sing our closing hymn. Tis almost time for the Lord to come. I hear the people say.
Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we can revisit this um, very powerful parable, Jesus' last day parable he preached there from the Mount of Olives. It has such a meaningful application to our own lives, the hours of last hours of earth's history that we are immersed in. We just pray that you would help us, Lord, to have that extra oil. Yes, the gold tried in the fire, the white raiment and the eyes salve, the precious graces and power of your Holy Spirit. And help us, Lord, to be ready to be awakened from our slumbers. And help us to watch and pray as you have enjoined us to do. We just pray all of this in Jesus' name.